This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Right on, guys. Hey, well, thank you for for being here. My name is Benji. Um, I'm one of the pastors who are helping start uh, this new community. If, If this is a week uh, old church. So this is the second night um, of us getting together, and so this is uh, this is so exciting for us and so amazing uh, because we believe in the church because Jesus believed in the church. Uh, when he left Earth, this was his idea to continue his work and to continue his movement on the Earth uh, was to send his people, his broken, messed up group of people that would be united around him and powered by his spirit to go and be his love, light, and redemption in the world. And that's our hope, is that uh, we're not, we don't believe we're anything special. We don't believe that we're anything uh, that's crazy, unique. All we believe is that God does amazing things when people get together and commit themselves to his mission, and that's our hope. Uh, so if you're new here and you're... Uh, and, and again, this is a big deal for you to be uh, in church. We're so glad you're here. We're glad that you decided to be with us on a Sunday night. Um, and we hope that you keep coming. We hope that you find uh, community here and belonging here. Um, we also know that Sunday night is, is probably not the most conducive environment to build deep, meaningful relationships. Our hope is in the next few weeks, we're going to be starting to offer different opportunities in different regions in San Diego for you to connect on a, on a deeper level, for you to build relationships, because we believe that's an important for to practice and to live the way of Jesus. And, uh, and if you're new, we are just starting a, a new series called The Narrative of Light. And uh, we believe that this, this book, the Bible, matters tremendously for today. Uh, and so rather than spending uh, months and years going over each uh, verse and each story, we decided to kind of make this a little bit more broad and big picture by looking at the elements that make up story. Um, because I don't know about you, but I love uh, movies, love film, I love books. Um, I love getting wrapped up in a story. And what's interesting is as you study story, is every great story has the same elements, right? Every story has characters, uh, which we talked about last week. We talked about how the main character of this story, the narrative of light, the, the story of God is God. It's not us. We're not the main character. So if you're here to figure out how to be the best you for your story, this may not be the place for you. But if you're here to figure out what is the story that God is telling and what is our role in that, then this may make a lot more sense. We learned how we, are, we play a significant role in this story. How when God casted the role in hum, the human story, he chose us. He says we are literally made in his image to be about his business in the world, and that's the role we get to play in, uh, in this story. And so tonight we're going to be talking not about character, but about setting. Right, and, and how significant setting is. And then next week we'll talk about foreshadowing because every story has foreshadowing, right? And when you kind of see things in the beginning that lead to later on. And that's what we see in the very beginning of the human story is this, this kind of uh, catastrophe that is really um, just a, a small fragment of something much bigger that was happening in the universe. And then we're going to talk about what every great story has is conflict, 
Right, there's not a single movie you've ever watched that does not have conflict present or else that movie never made it past uh, the box office. And that's because we live in this tension. We live in this story where something was birthed and spoken, but at the same time, we are met with darkness in this life. But every conflict and every great story comes to a climax where that conflict is met with hope. We believe in this church that that hope is found in Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the resolution to this story. So we're going, to, we're going to do our best to take six weeks and cover the story of God, which we're calling the narrative of light. Uh, and so last week, again, we talked about how this idea that what happens when God's the main character of your story. And I don't know about you, but when I'm the main character of my story, I'm filled with anxiety, with weight, with pressure. But when I step back and realize I'm a part of a, a bigger story, that's being told, and I'm playing my role in it, all of a sudden I have a sense of peace and purpose that, that I can never create myself. But the character is important, but the setting oftentimes gets overlooked, but the setting is a crucial part of the story. I love what the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Adora Welty, said. She says this, every story would be another story and an unrecognizable if it took up its characters and plot and happened somewhere else. Story depends for its life on place. Place is the crossroads of circumstances, the proving ground of what happened, who's here, who's coming. And, and this, and this award-winning author just talks about how without the setting, the story really doesn't make sense. And just, just to kind of prove this point, I want to tell you one of my favorite stories I've told when I was a youth pastor, and I just can't get beyond the story. It's just one of my favorites. Because it's one of the stories my friend told me a few years back. And so a friend of theirs went to SeaWorld, and they had, a, they had a few kids, and their oldest child was a 14-year-old son uh, and with pretty severe autism. And they brought their son to uh, SeaWorld, one of his favorite places. A lot of autistic children have a special connection with animals. And so they go there, and uh, they're, they're enjoying their day, and all of a sudden, their son's gone. And they're starting to get really frightened and really worried, right? Conflict. Um, and... And so they begin to look, and they can't find him, so they inform the park, and they're just asking, like, can we please look for our son? And all of a sudden, uh, after it's been now minutes, if not hours, uh, where they have not seen their son, they see their son walk around the corner, and he's just soaking wet, really upset, really disturbed, and, and won't say anything. So they decide to go home. They get him in the car, uh, get their kids in the car. He's still soaking wet, and they drive all the way back to Temecula, uh, where they lived at the time. And uh, they get to the house, the, the father helps the son out of the car to get him inside, lives, gets his backpack, which was kind of his son's uh, comfort item, and always took it with him everywhere, and all of a sudden realizes his, his backpack's a little bit heavier and kind of wiggles a little bit, and he's like, what, what is that? He opens it up, and I kid you not, there's a, a live penguin in his backpack. I'm not making this up. So he immediately, like, zips it back up. And he's just like, oh my God, there's a penguin in Temecula, right? And so he calls SeaWorld and he says, hey, you, uh, uh, we have your penguin, please come get it. And they, and they say, please uh, stop prank calling us, sir. And they hang up the phone and he calls again and again and they won't believe it. And finally he calls back, he says, I am the fire chief of Temecula. We have your penguin. Check your videos and come get it. Sure enough, they look at the footage and their 14-year-old son Goes to the penguin counter, if you've ever been there, and kind of swims across the water, opens his backpack, puts a penguin in, zips it up, wades across, and goes about his way. 
Of course, it's what you do at SeaWorld. Now, my cousin uh, was a part of the Make-A-Wish thing, and her wish was to actually get to hang out with penguins, so they took her in. She got to pet penguins. But that story is not that interesting because it happened in SeaWorld. This story is interesting because there's a penguin in Temecula. You see how setting matters? Setting makes the story, right? It, it, it sets the tone for the kind of story it is. Well, the reality is, is this setting of the story of God matters so much because if we don't know the setting of the story, if we're not careful, the setting of our own lives becomes the lens in which we view God. And that is incredibly dangerous. Because either, A, you've, ha- you've been dealt a really hard life. And so when you hear songs like, you are good, good, oh, Lord, it's hard for you to sing because the setting of your life, that doesn't make sense. Or maybe you've been incredibly privileged and life's beautiful and amazing, but there's a sense in you where like, well, I, I kind of earned this and, and I must be more favored than everyone else. And you kind of pity. And, and again, it's a skewed view of God. It'd be like if my daughter's only view of her dad was when I had to have her have a shot at the doctor's office. Now, did that happen? Is that a part of her story? Yes. But is that the setting of her life? I hope not. I hope the setting of her life is one of nurture and care and love. But the problem is we live, according to Ecclesiastes, in a vapor. And it's oftentimes a painful one. And so if we're not aware of the setting that God puts forth in this story, very quickly we can begin to associate and rethink, is God really good? Why does he make the world so much suffering and pain? And we're going to talk about that's actually the opposite of what God set his story to be. And so we're going to be looking through Genesis chapter 2, yes, all of it, in just a minute. And we're going to actually do a little bit of a spiritual mental exercise tonight. And we're going to try and reimagine, not the setting of our own life, but what is the setting of the story of God? What does that mean for right now? And what does that mean for the days and the years to come? So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask my friend Chris to come up here. Uh, and because we're going to read the entire chapter 2 of Genesis. That's 25 verses. And if you're bored, I want you to be bored at him, not at me. So, and he's Australian. So you're going to really appreciate it. It's just more entertaining and way more anointed than anything I could ever say. So, uh, so but this is what I want you to do. This is just a little bit of a challenge. Um, please don't zone out. These, according, to, according to God, these, these words are living and active. And so one of my favorite teachers uh, has this saying, it says, smell the text. Like, insert yourself in the story, right? Imagine, use the gift of imagination, and don't lose yourself in, in all the words. But I think it's important we read the whole chapter. What is the setting of this story that God is telling? Okay, so cha- Genesis chapter 2, let's listen up. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one, no one to work the ground. 
but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thank you, Chris. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. Can you, can you imagine? As he's reading that, I'm just closing my eyes and I'm imagining colors that are untainted by pollution. I'm imagining animals that are interacting with each other that normally wouldn't. I'm imagining rivers that literally lead to gold. I'm imagining trees with fruit. And it's just this euphoric, beautiful image. And, 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 it's, and it was meant to be that. It was meant to be this reminder that at the very, very beginning, the setting of the story of God, the, the beginning of humanity, the intent of God is what the Jewish people call shalom. We interpret that peace, but peace is a really a terrible understanding of it because when we think peace, we think of like zen or tranquil or lack of, uh, you know, lack of distraction, things like that. But for the Jewish people, shalom was a central theme to their life because shalom meant everything in its right order. 
It's the Garden of Eden. Everything is in its right order. Everything works. And, and we know that in today's world, that is not the case, right? It's not the case in our relationships. It's not the case in nature, right? The, the, the earthquakes and the fires and divorce and uh, breakups. And, uh, and there's just so much around us that we're like, that. our world doesn't look like that, but this is a reminder to tell us that when God created us, his intent was not for us to suffer. And I know this might sound elementary, but so many of us begin to question that as life goes on and life becomes to get more complex and we experience more loss. We begin to question the character of God because we think about our setting, not this setting. But this setting was given to us for three reasons. Number one, it tells us God's intent Number two, it reminds us that this world is not our home. It's a reminder. It brings clarity that as amazing as this life is, I mean, my friends, we are in Encinitas, California. This may be one of the greatest spots on earth. Kid you not. I mean, look at like the rental prices around here. People want to be right here. This cannot compare, though, to the Garden of Eden. This is to remind us that as comfortable as we long to be, don't get too comfortable. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the fact that our hearts yearn for something that earth can't supply is proof that heaven must be our home. By the way, if you ever want to know what heaven's like, read about the garden. It's one of our greatest pictures we could ever have of what heaven will be like. A lot of times we've been given a disservice by thinking that heaven is a bunch of clouds and naked angels with diapers and, and singing after singing after singing. I mean, like, it's just... A lot of times we're just like, this sounds so boring after 45 minutes. Like, church is already too long. An eternity? But when we look at the garden, we see something radically different. Right? So the garden, it gives us insight to God's intent. It gives us clarity to what we have right now. And it gives us this hope of what's to come. And it also just reminds us that something went terribly wrong with the setting, like most stories do. Like, almost any story, right? I mean, like, think, think of Toy Story, right? You start out in Andy's room, right? And then all of a sudden, what's that guy's name? And then you're in Sid's room. This is 2018. We are in Sid's room. <laughs> but by the end of the movie, we are back in Andy's room. I mean, I mean, this is a common story. This is a common theme in story. Because I believe it's something deeper in our souls that we all know is true. And so when we, when we look at this, I love how Micah, the, the prophet, this is hundreds of years later, he describes what's happening. And he starts talking about gardening tools. Because if you notice, the garden is the perfect uh, metaphor for, for the presence of God. And it begins to talk about this, this idea of a garden. It talks about how these tools in the garden, shovels and, and plowshares and pruning hooks, all of a sudden are used as swords and spears. But then he starts, I love this prophecy because it talks about that someday this beautiful world that went wrong will be made right again. The setting is not set in 2018. The setting is something that is set in eternity. Listen to what Micah 4, verses 3 through 4 says. He says, He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And I love this. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. 
Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine, right back at this garden imagery, and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. I mean, we just learned in the news how Hawaii had this, this, this freak thing happen. They're getting alerts like, sorry, there, there is a ballistic missile coming to your place. And for 38 minutes, people thought that their life was over. There is something terribly wrong. That when God created the garden, he gave man intrinsic authority and power to rule and have dominion. And when sin enters the story, which we'll talk about next week, all of a sudden, it no longer looks like a garden. It loves it. They learn war. But there's a day coming when we go back to the garden. But this is what's amazing. You know, the Bible does not describe heaven like a garden. It describes it like a city. Because what happens when you garden well? Well, you begin to make fields. And those fields provide crops. And those crops are sold so you can build a home. And after you build multiple homes, you have a town. And as towns begin to flourish and families flourish, all of a sudden you have a city. And this is the image that God has. And I love what Dr. Tim Mackey says of the Bible Project. He says, the Garden of Eden was not perfect. And when I heard that, I was like, whoa, dude. Like, that's it. I thought it was perfect. He says, no, no, no. The Garden of Eden was not perfect because in the Jewish sense, perfect means complete. When God created the garden, he left work to be done. Isn't that fascinating? Like, God did not just go, ta-da, Right? Like, Genesis 2 is not Adam and Eve sipping margaritas poolside, enjoying the goodness of God. It's work. But it's, it's not cursed, right? It's not, it's not hard, laborious work. It's beautiful, meaningful, life-giving, redemptive work. We will not be bored in eternity, my friends. Just as Adam and Eve were not bored in the garden, there is a never ending, glorious, beautiful creation that will continue to flourish as we image God. It's a totally different perspective when we begin to look at this, and I, and I love this. In the garden, and if you caught this, it, represents, it talks about different imagery. It talks about how there's trees and water. It talks about there's gold and gems. Did you know that these same things described in the garden were the same materials used to create the tabernacle years later? Now, for those who are new to kind of the Judeo-Christian tradition, the tabernacle is when the people of God built a tent, and the presence of God, for the first time since the garden, now dwelt with man again. And then years later, they built a temple to house the the, pre the presence of God in a permanent place. And guess what they used? Trees and water running through it, gold, gems. And guess what they describe what heaven will be like, right? Streets of gold, right? Water, living water that will run. It talks about, it's this beautiful imagery. And what that tells us is one thing, right? At the very center of the garden is not just really, really good fruit, Right? It's not just euphoric imagery. At the center of the garden, what makes the garden the garden is the same thing that makes, the, what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. 
That's what made the tabernacle the tabernacle, the temple the temple, at the very center of the garden. Why it was so life-giving and flourishing is the presence of God. Because when the presence of God is, there is life. And when the presence of God is removed or dis, um, or, or, or uh, unrecognized, destruction enters in. And so we have this setting. And then it begins to start talking about our role in this setting. What are we doing in, in this setting? And, and because, right, we don't want to be a penguin in Temecula, right? We don't want to be, we don't want to know the setting, but then not find our place in that setting. We want to be where we're supposed to be. I mean, have you ever been to the beach in summer and you totally know when people are from out of town? Yes? Come on. Like, you know, like, they're from Kansas, for sure, right? I have not seen that shade of white in a long time. Like, there's this sense where you're like, wow, this does not fit here. And I think oftentimes there is a sense where the Christian life often can kind of feel this disorienting sense of like, I, I, I believe in God. I even maybe I go to church once in a while, but how does my life fit into the setting of God's story? And I love what it describes here because there's three things we can take away, and it's pretty simple. Three things that we see man and woman do in the garden that Jesus did when he showed up on earth, which, by the way, if you ever want to see how to live this life the way that it was intended, look how Jesus lived in a fallen world. We see Jesus mimic these practices again and again. And I believe, I'm convinced, that these things will still be in existence when we're in heaven. These are the beginning They're in the life of Jesus. They're going to be with us forever. So the first one is this. There's consecrated rest. The very beginning of of, of chapter 2 begins with rest. Isn't it amazing? It doesn't begin with work. It doesn't mean like, let's get going, people. No, no, it begins with, hey, let's just enjoy, savor, see, taste, feel the beauty that I've created. There's con- and by the way, consecrated just is just a fancy way because it started with a C and I like, you know, structure. Uh, it's just a way of just saying kind of set apart rest. It's not accidental rest. It's intentional rest. Uh, B, there's creative reordering. So this is interesting. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse, uh, the first few verses, it talks about how when God created, the word that in Hebrew it uses this word bara. And it literally means to create from nothing. It's this powerful idea, concept, it's even hard for us to understand because anything you've ever created, you created from something, right? You had material. Everything you see around here, we took material, reordered it in such a way for it to look, sound, taste, feel the way it does. Well, God, not so. When he creates, he creates from nothing. And so when he gives us the first command, by the way, pop quiz, do you know the first command ever given to humanity is create? It's para. It's not create from nothing. It's create from something. Take what you see, reorder it, and make something beautiful. I mean, I look around this room, and many of you guys that I know, and there's some of you I'm just getting to know, but I look, and I know some of your jobs, right? I mean, my friend John back here is a water engineer, and he takes different um, kind of engineering ideas goes to places that don't have water, and he creates wells for them so they can get clean water. It's a reordering that brings life, right? Uh, Lindsay, our friend, just came out with a, a book on poems. She just took letters and words, 
put them in a way, and out of it became beauty. Right? And this is, this, is, this is just what we do. My, my wonderful mother-in-law uh, was watching our four kids today. She is creatively reordering their attitudes, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, we, we just think of it as this is just what I do. No, 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 no. This is holy. Right? And, the, and the third thing is there's covenant relationship. I love this. Not only between God and Adam, but how wild is it in the perfect presence of God, Adam was not complete. There was something missing. And so, you know, in comes Eve, and hey, Adam messed up, we're going to talk about, we're going to rail on Adam next week, so be here. But if Adam did one thing right, is he did not settle when he was picking a helper. Amen? Can we just give Adam that, right? He didn't like say, like, an ostrich looks good, right? Golden retriever, you'll do. No, thank God that when he got to the last animal in line, he still is like, this isn't good enough. And he got a woman, he's like, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. So, but in this covenant relationship, I love this. In the very beginning, it says, you will leave mother and father, which they didn't even have, and be united. One flesh, you'll be one person with this woman. And this is, I believe this is beyond marriage. I believe this is intent for God, for humanity. It's this idea that we were designed for the type of relationship that cannot be ruptured or severed. Now, that is a radical notion in this day and age. And the only reason I feel confident up here saying that is if there was ever a relationship that was toxic enough to be severed, it was my relationship with Jesus. It was humanity's relationship with God. Matter of fact, God says that it was, we were enemies of him, that even our righteous acts were like filthy rags. I mean, you want to talk about a relationship that was worthy to be cut off, but God says, no, 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 no. In my economy, in my setting, relationships were not intended to be ripped apart, no matter how much work and sacrifice it costs. And he modeled that for us in giving his son so that he could have us back. So just kind of going over these briefly again is this idea that if we are to model the setting of God in 2018, it has to begin with rest. Now listen, we're planting a church. I'm still working another job and I'm still doing web design on the side. I have four kids. I know what it's like to be busy. But when I remove rest from my rhythm of my life. I don't just suffer. My family suffers. You would suffer. This message was not birthed out of tireless studying. It was birthed out of quiet moments, praying and walking with the Lord. I love what Dr. Matthew Sleeth, who's an MD, talks about in his book 24-6, and he says, rest shows us who God is. He has restraint. Restraint is refraining from doing everything that one has the power to do. I love that line. We must never mistake God's restraint for weakness. The opposite is true. God chose restraint, therefore restraint is holy. When we rest, we're restraining from our own effort. And what we're saying is that, God, we are going to let you work. We're going to enjoy you. I remember Nate was telling me a little bit ago, he was reading an article 
of how we receive more information in one day than someone in the middle age would receive in their entire life. We worship busyness as it's a crown or a badge to be worn that somehow gives us some sort of significance in our life. And God, who could do more than we ever could, decided to rest. So when we choose that rest is just an option rather than a command, we are actually exerting ourselves above the Lord's best for us and saying, no, it's okay, God. I think I'll do my own way. And we're back to the main character of our own story. I love what Dallas Willard says about hurry. He says this, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly try and remove it, or remove hurry from your life. Jesus says it like this, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Can I just say, resting is not watching Netflix. That, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying when you rest without Jesus, you will never be fulfilled. Hebrews 4 talks about Jesus is our rest now. He is our rest. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and move past these next points. I just want to kind of close with this. As we think about these, if we can put that slide up with these kind of these three concepts again. As I was praying for you guys and I was thinking about tonight and I was just kind of going through the, my notes and, just, and I just began to say, Lord, what's, what's the point? What, why, why do we need to know the setting of the story? Why is this important? And I feel like the first thing he told me is that there are some of you who are in this room and your setting is so, your, your personal setting is really dark and really hopeless. And tonight you need to be reminded that you are part of a greater and larger story that is being told. And there's no amount of failure, rebellion, or sin that can remove you from that story. God is calling you out of this idea that your life is all that exists and is calling you to say, you know what? Your pain will not be wasted. I am the God of redemption. Not only will your pain not be wasted, I will use you to bring life to other people as well. The second reason is I was praying is just kind of this list right here. I feel like some of you have no idea of how holy and significant your life is. Like you're waiting for it to happen or something. Maybe you're a college student, like someday my life will be significant. Maybe you're waiting for, well, once this happens, once I get a promotion, then, then I'll have influence. No, 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 no. According to Genesis chapter 2, when you rest, when you work, and when you, in, when you enter into relationships, you are doing the very foundation of the setting of the story of God. And to be reminded of the dignity in which you live. And lastly, as I was just praying, is just to remind you that 
uh, I have a hard time teaching messages like this because it can very easily mis be mistaken as I have to go and do this or do that. And I, and I really would like for you to know this. If, if you don't have relationship with Jesus, this doesn't matter. I mean, your work matters, your relationship matters, but they'll never be satisfied until you receive the gift of life that Jesus brings. And I'll be the first to tell you that you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't even have to know fully what that means. All it is, I mean, the disciples didn't know what they were saying yes to. All they just said is yes. They received an invitation and they responded. And I think for some of you tonight, that's, that's you. There's an invitation that God is extending to you. Like, would you like to be a part of something more beautiful and meaningful that only comes through the gift of my son, Jesus? And my hope is that tonight you would say yes. If you do, um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that, but all I would ask you to do is, would you tell someone? Uh, you can check the box that you have on your Connect card. We have a bag for you back there full of, like, um, some books on, like, how do you know if God exists or how, what do I do with my faith? There's a Bible in there. We, we'd love to just put something in your hand just to be like, hey, we, we want to help you in your journey. Um, but and, and, and obviously, come talk to me or... Jen, Chris, and Rose, anyone on our team, and just say, hey, you know, how, what does this look like? How do I begin the journey with Jesus? How do I let the setting that God began with become real in my life? So I'm going to invite um, Rose to come on up. She's going to kind of close our, um, our time, kind of lead us in a time of response. Um, I'm going to invite Mark up, too, if he's, if he's around and uh, we're just going to take what we just learned, read about, and we're just going to let uh, me get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit begin to speak to you. It's why you have that note card, because he might be speaking to you tonight. So I'm going to let Rose kind of give us some, some direction on how to do that.